0: Twice a week, Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay dissect the biggest topics in Black culture, politics, and sports on their show, Higher Learning. They discuss the most important and timely conversations while also frequently inviting guests on the podcast and occasionally debating each other. Check out Higher Learning on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. All
1: right, welcome back, everybody. This is Larry Wilmore. You are listening to Black on the Air Thanks for tuning in, you guys. Um, we got a real meaty, meaty podcast today. <laughs> um, subject I've wanted to cover for a while. Craig Whitlock, reporter for The Washington Post, is here with his book, The Afghanistan Papers. And we're going to go through kind of a deep dive on the whole war in Afghanistan. And, um, who, man, some of the um, just issues and lies and the whole quagmire because, uh, you know, it's this is we were there 20 years, you guys. And this this war, so many people had just pretty much forgot about. It. And I feel like Iraq took all the uh, oxygen out of the room and everything, and so many other things. And um, it's just fascinating how fucked up uh, this situation was and how we fucked up big time in Afghanistan by Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden. So, congratulations. United States, uh, that was a nice little relay race you guys did. A fucking up on the war. So Craig Whitlock uh, is here to talk about it. Um, we had a real good conversation. I don't have a big weigh-in today. I have one thing that I want to talk about. Because this this kind of bugs me a little bit. And let me tell you what the what the issue is. Like, here's the thing. I'll put it in this way. Let's do a new segment on the show, okay? The segment is going to be called, You're Not Wrong, but this ain't right. Okay. <laughs> You're not wrong, but this ain't right. And let me tell you what this is, because I find it's very easy right now to fully disagree with things. We're in a very divisive world. Full disagreements are not hard to come by, right? Partial disagreements are a little tougher to like argue and discuss and talk about. And by partial Disagreements, you know, times when you're in, let's call, an uneasy agreement um, on an issue or qualified disagreement, you know. Um, There's that gray area, I think, that isn't talked about a lot. And this is the stuff, because you know, guys, I am contrary. (laughs) If everybody's doing something, oh, Buster's barking there. If everybody's doing something, I feel like... uh, you know, um, that means I probably need to, to think about it and maybe go a different direction. Or, you know, at least at least do my homework and see what's what. So anyhow, uh, one of the issues, hey, this is cool. Buster hasn't been on the show. You guys can hear him barking in the back, background now. I'm just going to let it go. I don't care. Um, in fact, I should have Buster on one of these days so he can bark directly into the microphone rather than uh, just bark. Let me see what's going Buster, come here. I'm trying to do the weigh-in and you're barking in the background. Come here. Okay. So anyhow, the segment is, you're not wrong, but this ain't right. Okay. And I will try to fit things into this whenever I can. And I have one for this week because it's one of those issues that I'm like, guys, uh, uh, I want to agree with you, but uh, uh." (laughs) I'll tell you what I mean. Here's what the issue is this week. Missing white woman syndrome. Okay. So. You guys saw the story of the young lady, Gabrielle Petito, I think was her name, who was missing. Uh, she and her boyfriend were like, I don't know, TikTokers or they were social media users who were taking this trip. And suddenly she came up missing and he came back and didn't say anything. And now he's missing. You know, it was saturated in the news, kind of, you know, the way that they like to do sensationalize and all this stuff. And then it, they end up finding her body, you know, obviously, most likely murdered by him. A terrible situation. As a parent, you know, you certainly don't want to um, face something like that, you know. And one of the critiques out there about this story is that how come the news likes to cover white women, you know, when they're missing, and you never see them covering women of color or black women like that, you know, but when white women are missing, you know, uh, it's always covered in the news like that. And you know what? You're not wrong. You're not wrong, you know. Although I will say, I feel this is a point that, like, Paul Mooney would have made, you know, or comedians or, you know, media critics. But it's interesting that this critique came from news organizations itself. Joy Reid, MSNBC, covered it on her show. New York Times covered it in news in its newspapers. That's where I kind of have a problem about it. I don't mind when the rest of us talk about it, but these are news organizations uh, talking about this. And I feel like it is not quite the right context to be talking about this. in. And I'll tell you why. To me, here's an issue of domestic violence, clear domestic violence. There are a lot of things that happen in this with police pulling them over. That was on video. Uh, A lot of things that can give us insight into how domestic violence works, how insidious it is, the control that men can have in these situations of why women will act like nothing's wrong or something is their fault. And next thing you know, they wind up dead. Guys, that's some fucking serious shit. You know, the the power that some of these men take away from women in these situations, obviously making them feel powerless and, and they wind up dead. You guys is a terrible situation to me. The issue of domestic violence is the chief issue here, especially by a news organization, not missing white women's syndrome. I get it. This is why I say you're not wrong. Yes, sure. You're absolutely right about that. You know, I wish the, like, um, if I was still doing my show, The Nightly Show, we probably would have made that point. Although I'll, I fucking guarantee you I would have made this point too. But it is not a point that a news organization should be making. New York Times, MSNBC, while this girl is lying dead on, on a, in a morgue, this is the point that you're making, not about domestic violence. You're, you're having us look into the statistics of how many black people are covered in this situation and not how many women are killed in this situation. Guys, what the fuck? Seriously. This is a huge problem. Domestic violence is a big, big, big problem that is serious. Missing white women syndrome. Yes, it's it's something that's interesting. But, you know, it is not where the New York Times especially should be putting its focus on. You know, I'm really, you know, cable news, what are you going to do? But man, New York Times devoting, you know, space to that. Really just doesn't seem right. So this is my first, uh, (laughs) the first prize of you're not wrong, but this ain't right. Goes to the media coverage of missing white woman syndrome over domestic violence. All right. It ain't right. This is not the right context to be making that. So anyhow, you know, context is key, guys. Context is key. I was watching the Muhammad Ali Um, documentary had Kim Burns on last week. And listen to that one last week, if you haven't. It's really fun. And watch that documentary, especially if you're an Ali fan. One of the segments in it showed Malcolm X, and this is a very famous segment, where he was interviewed right after the Kennedy assassination. And Malcolm X talked about how this, to him, is a case of chickens coming home to roost. And... You know, it's not a sad occasion when chickens come home to roost, you know. Sometimes it's a glad occasion. He says something like that, you know. But he's making an analogy that wasn't wrong about, from his point of view, the evil that white people had done in the world against black people. And to him, almost like karma, this is coming back home, you know. Malcolm X wasn't wrong. But John F. Kennedy, you know, was— I mean, he was a beloved president and his, you know, his body was still warm, probably. I mean, who knows how long after this was done that he was talked about? You know, this was a huge tragedy for most of Americans. And it was not the proper thing for Malcolm X to say in that moment. Malcolm X wasn't wrong, but it was not right. And Elijah Muhammad understood that. Uh, For one thing, he was concerned about you know, the bad press the Nation of Islam would get. And so he, you know, silenced Malcolm X for a while because it hurt his organization. I don't think he cared about anything more than that at that time. Malcolm X himself walked back the statement as much as he could. It was very difficult because the nation was hated so much at that time. And this was before Malcolm split. This is what caused the split with the nation or was the start of it. And before he really came into his own as the type of leader that we remember him as. But he understood that, you know, probably wasn't the right thing to say at that time. Because context matters, you guys. Context matters. It's not enough to just say, well, that's the truth. Well, that's true. You know, well, sure. You know, you're not wrong sometimes. Let's not get so caught up in the truth. That we say, well, something is right. Well, that's what it is. Well, this is true. Well, I'm not wrong. Yes, but it doesn't mean that you're always right. It doesn't mean that the context is right or that it's proper. You know? What what about tact? (laughs) Whoever thought about that, you know, in those situations. I've been guilty of it myself. I haven't said the right thing in some situations. I talked about the time when I made fun of that kid in North Korea who was caught, you know, and he was crying. I look at it now and I'm embarrassed of how I handled that, you know, where I was trying to make a point about, you know, really about frat boys and how people think they can get away with things in other countries, but it's not America. I wasn't wrong, but man, I was not right in that situation. You know, that kid was frightened for his life and he ended up dead. And I felt like shit after he died. I felt like shit, you guys. And I was so ashamed of the fact that I actually did that story. If I could take any story back from the nightly show, it was that one. And people gave me some really nice notes. They said, but Larry, you weren't wrong. You know, He shouldn't have stolen that flag. And I was thinking, you know what? You're right, but I wasn't right. I wasn't wrong, but I really wasn't right. I had no business uh, punching down, as we like to say, in that situation. And that certainly was. Bad on me, you guys. Bad on me. But bad on all of us if we can't keep our eyes on the prize for what is, let's put it like this. Instead of focusing so much on what we think is right or something is true, you know, what do we need in the moment? Let's focus on what is needed in the moment, you know. Do we need to take care of ourselves in the moment? Do we need a little graciousness in the moment? Do we need a hard slap? Sometimes we do need a hard slap, you know. But I think if we focus more on what does this moment call for, rather than, well, this is the truth. This is what this is what I know. This isn't wrong. Oh, <laughs> uh, and it happens all over the place. This is not an ideological thing. This is truly not even a both sides thing. Everybody does this in some area of their life, you know, especially in relationships. How many times do we do this in relationships? That's probably one of the biggest examples where we bring up a point that is not a wrong point of what happened in a relationship, but it is not what the relationship is calling for in that moment. And let me just say it this way. Okay, let me give you a little relationship advice from somebody who's divorced, okay, who was married for 20 years. Or okay, guys, if your significant other is angry at you and expressing something, many times they are not uh, looking for your version of the truth. Okay, Um, because many times that's what you come back with, your version of the truth. What they're looking for is, number one, to be expressed, number two, to be heard, and number three, to be taken care of in that moment. They're looking for safety because they do not feel safe in that moment. And they're looking for safety. And your job as a concerned significant other is to provide those things. But if you stay on your side and all you do is give evidence as to why you're right, you're not wrong. But you're really far from right, you guys, because that is not what is needed in the moment. There's my little my little advice, my little relationship advice. I hope that helps. By the way, if you guys want more relationship stuff on the show, I'm happy to do it. You know, that kind of thing. It would be fun stuff to do. You know, we can have more guests in that area because, you know, I think we could all use that type of help all the time. I know I can Like I said, you know, I'm the one that's divorced, giving the advice, right? All right, Uh, that's all I got. Coming up, we got uh, Craig Whitlock and the Afghanistan Papers right after this.
0: This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles. and your car. Jiffy Lube. Car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com.
1: All right. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, My special guest this week has written, wow, let's call it an Ellsbergian account of the Afghanistan war. Right up there with the I mean, seriously, with the Pentagon Papers, as far as I'm concerned, the Afghanistan Papers, Secret History of the War in Afghanistan. It's a fascinating book, you guys. I said I've got to read it about three times. It's so dense, but so well reported and so fascinating. Craig Whitlock, welcome to Black in the Air, Craig. Thanks for having me very much. Uh reporter I was gonna say Cub Reporter for the Washington Post. <laughs> I love that term, Cub Reporter. It always sounds great. Yeah. It keeps us young, Craig. It keeps you young. That's dude. right. I'll take it yes, exactly, but uh, thanks for being a show. I really appreciate it it this is a it's a fascinating 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 book. There's so much in it, and there's so much in this whole mess you know <laughs> that I know you had to work through and everything um now, how did this project? Begin. Did it begin as more of
2: a uh, kind of a magazine project for the newspaper, so to speak, or it it all began with a tip from a source? It wasn't Uh that I was looking to dive into a big project on Afghanistan. It was the summer of 2016. And Uh uh, I got a tip that uh, a federal agency called the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan had uh, interviewed a fairly well-known army general, Michael Flynn. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was Hmm. I covered the Pentagon. And so in the military, he actually was pretty well respected. But then he retired and he started jumping into politics. And that summer he was gaining a lot of notoriety for campaigning for Donald Trump and shouting, lock her up, lock her up about Clinton. But I wanted to know, I heard he had given this long interview about the war in Afghanistan. And I was interested in what he said, because he used to be in charge of military intelligence over there in the war. Uh Uh, And I thought it was going to be a simple public records request to just get a transcript of what he said. Uh, Long story short, The Washington Post had to sue the government for this under the Freedom of Information Act. Uh Uh, And what we found was that Flynn was pretty unsparing in his assessment of Afghanistan and all the mistakes that were made. Uh And I found out that he was just one of hundreds of people who had been interviewed about the war. Uh, from people all the way from 2001 under Bush to those under Obama and some under Trump. So I thought, well, this is really interesting. What what did all these people say? Because at that point, everybody kind of thought the war was winding down. Obama had promised to end it. Uh, So people weren't really paying that much attention. But this would be a, a potential historical look at what went wrong in Afghanistan. So again, the Post had to sue again to get the rest of the documents. It took us three years, but the documents were really revelatory because they just showed all these people who thought their remarks wouldn't be made public admitting how screwed up things were in Afghanistan, Uh how many mistakes they had made, and above all, had really misled the American people about how things were going for many, many years. So Uh uh, fortunately, the Post decided to publish all these online uh, and there was a you know there was a big response from our readership and that led to the book i ended up giving a lot more similar documentation for the book transcripts of oral histories but again right. this theme of all these people saying what went wrong in afghanistan in very unvarnished language
1: it's really fascinating Um, you know at the beginning of world war ii after the germans invaded poland there was this period called sitzkrieg you know which is known as the the uh, phony war, because on the outside, it seemed like nothing was going on, even though war was kind of happening <laughs> in certain ways. I feel like we've had a Sitzkrieg for like the past 20 years almost, you know, this this shadow or almost shadow war in some ways, a war that was talked about differently than what was going on at almost every single turn and by almost every president engaged in it.
2: Yeah, that's what I think... Even to me doing research on this, I was shocked when I'd read these interviews or these documents at just the contrast between what our leaders were saying in public about what was going on in Afghanistan and what was really happening on the ground, both in terms of individual events, things happening. They were giving us the flip version, but also just their overall assessment of how the war was going. And this happened under Bush and Obama Obama and mm-hmm. Trump, you know, they just they were feeding us one version for public consumption when in reality from the very beginning there were all these, you know, fundamental doubts about what they were doing and right. lack of confidence in their strategy and that years ago they had really come to the conclusion that this was an unwinnable mm-hmm. war that kept telling the public that we were making progress and turning the corner and you know victory was in hand and things like this and I just I, you know, I think we were the public in general was just sort of, you know, they were kind of paying attention, but we kind of got accustomed to this. And right. it was out of sight, out of mind. We accepted that narrative. And then when you go back and really dig under the surface, it, you know, it, it is pretty shocking just how screwed up things were.
1: Yeah, it uh, it's amazing how the series Homeland got so many things right. And it was a contemporaneous television show. You know, it's like you make that show 10 years after, but how do you make that show during? That was fascinating, you know. Uh, Craig, one of the things I'd like to do for this, for the sake of, you know, we cover, we do so many things in this podcast. Let's, let's start from the beginning as much as we can to give kind of a, a macro view of Afghanistan. You know, let's start with that Soviet invasion, if you will. Like what in the macro, what was that invasion all about? And let's kind of describe what was happening in Afghanistan during that time.
2: Yeah, so this was this 1979 was when the Soviets invaded? December it? 1979. I right. was, I, was uh, I think, in sixth grade or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> my teacher made us go to the library in my middle school to look up every reference to Afghanistan.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, there was virtually nothing outside of the encyclopedia and uh, right. National Geographic. So, you know, Americans really had no idea about anything about this country. Then the Soviets yeah. invaded and suddenly it became on you know, the radar for us. But
1: yeah, we, I think Carter boycotted the Olympics because of exactly. it, which was a huge thing. Yeah.
2: And this was a real Cold War conflict at the time. The Soviets went into Afghanistan because it bordered mm. their country and because they wanted a communist puppet state and they wanted mm-hmm. to install uh, a regime there that was more favorable to Moscow.
1: Was it mainly like warlords during that time or what was the government? What was how was it structured during that period? Well,
2: prior to that, Afghanistan had actually been a monarchy for a long time. Then Mm in the 70s, there were a number of coups where you had different ruling parties come in. But it was kind of it was these almost potentates, so to speak, and people Uh, relations who were controlling Afghanistan. Right. Um, not warlords per se, but, you know, this had led to instability and the mm-hmm. Soviets finally finally had enough and they wanted to get in some diehard communist leaders. Right. Uh, because they were worried it could maybe tilt out of their orbit a little bit. So that, And they that felt
1: the they issue. could exploit that instability rather easily. I mean, they're the Soviet Union, right?
2: That's right. And so mm-hmm. this led, though, to a very... Uh, bloody, very costly 10-year war in which the Soviets were trying to put down an insurgency in Afghanistan Uh that were led by what they were called the Mujahideen, the holy warriors, that became partly a religious conflict where Uh uh, Islamic leaders who were opposed to the Soviet communist regime banded together to try and drive them out. And of course, the Americans were supporting the Mujahideen during that time with with, (sighs) weaponry and and finances yeah. and things like that and by the time the soviets withdrew in 1989 the united states thought this had been a, a terrific outcome in afghanistan that we right, had right. out the red army and little did we know we would get dragged into a much longer war there eventually
1: and in that uh vacuum uh after the soviets left the taliban kind of arose right
2: They did it. it, Not at first. At first, there was just really a a no holds barred civil war in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. between all the different factions that had been fighting against the Soviets. So the Soviets left in 1989. Their puppet government hung on for a few years. Uh uh, But there was this really bitter civil war. And then the puppet regime fell. And then you had all the different warlords and factions fighting each other. Really just the, the country was already battered, but they further tore it apart. And into that vacuum, the Taliban kind of stepped in starting around 1996. They kind of swept through the country pretty quickly uh, in an attempt to restore order and try and bring some stability to Afghanistan. they did it in a very brutal way. Uh They had taken over about 90% of the country by 2001, which is, of course, when September 11th happened. And then the United States came back on the scene.
1: So ironically the Taliban were kind of the peace bringers to the Afghan people in some ways, even though they were, they had their own brutal ways and everything, they kind of stopped all the, the mishagash that was going on. There. Well, I, I,
2: maybe <laughs> stability is the word to use. Uh, yes, yeah,
1: Stability, I guess, yeah, as opposed they, to peace, you know, that uh, iron, iron fist stability.
2: I think that's right. And I think in yes. some ways, a lot of Afghans, they they didn't like the iron fist, but they
1: uh-huh.
2: they they hated the warlords and the civil war that was going on. They wanted the fighting to stop. And they saw the warlords as these factional leaders, uh-huh. uh, as, as corrupt, and they had torn apart the country. So maybe the Taliban wasn't going to win a popularity contest, but it was seen in some parts of Afghanistan, particularly in the rural areas as a preferable alternative to some of these warlords, which were just always, uh-huh. I mean, they they literally bombarded Kabul to where the capital was just a bunch of rubble by the time 2001 came around.
1: Uh-huh. Would you say the Taliban is like a cruder version of what like the, of what the Ayatollah kind of represented in Iran when that, uh, you know, when the religious faction took over at around the same time, actually, as 1979? Yeah, or so 1980.
2: Sort of. The Taliban mm-hmm. certainly impose a theocracy in Afghanistan, right. like the Ayatollah Khomeini did in Iran. Uh, now, mm-hmm. there are two different branches of Islam. The the Iranians were are Shia, and the Taliban are Sunni. So, actually, mm-hmm. the Taliban in Iran during the 90s didn't get along very well. They were, right. they were hostile to, toward each other, even though they were both theocratic Muslim governments.
1: Yeah. And so what's and the Taliban let's talk about al qaeda cuz what what this war uh, in many ways is about especially in the beginning to me is the clarification between al qaeda and Taliban and and what their roles were in terrorism and the United States and all this and, and Bin Laden. So first, let's describe Al Qaeda at around this time, let's say 2000. Uh, was Osama Bin Laden, was he part of Al Qaeda or was he an independent kind of terrorist actor?
2: Well, you know, Osama Bin Laden was one of the founders of Al Qaeda. OK. And, and so he he. Created that network, that organization uh, he just happened to sort of seek refuge in Afghanistan because during the eighties he had helped some of the Mujahideen fight the mm-hmm. Soviets. So he we had were a, on the
1: same side during the eighties, right?
2: That's right. And so he was fighting the Russians. And uh, so he had left. He was in Sudan where he was actually setting up Al Qaeda. He was a Saudi national, so the Saudis didn't want to let him back in his country and. He was mm-hmm. looking for a refuge, so he went back to Afghanistan in the mid '90s, and the Taliban uh, sort of became friends with him and his Al Qaeda followers. Al Qaeda mm-hmm. was a, it wasn't a big group. We're talking, you know, maybe they had several hundred fighters in Afghanistan that they used for training camps, um, and the Taliban was much bigger. The Taliban were Afghans or Pashtuns from next door in Pakistan. So they were a local indigenous group. Uh Al-Qaeda was mostly foreign fighters, particularly Arabs. Uh, So different nationality, different ethnicity, spoke different languages. Uh Uh, And Al-Qaeda also had sort of a global agenda where they were trying to target the United States and other countries in the Middle East that were, where the governments were friendly to the United States. Whereas the Taliban's view was really they were they were a local group they cared about a theocracy in afghanistan but sure they didn't do too much beyond the afghan borders
1: right they were more uh you could say land-based you know place-based and uh, al-qaeda was more ideological right they were they were fighting an ideological war at that time. Yeah, a, a
2: global yeah. ideological global war. They ideological to war. Install yeah. a, a caliphate, a Muslim rule yes. uh, system throughout the Muslim world, and the the Taliban kind of I think they were along the same ideological lines, but mm-hmm. they but they just cared about Afghanistan. They they weren't this global thinking group. They they just yeah. wanted to take control in Afghanistan. That was their their objective.
1: Very, it was very straightforward. Let me ask you. Let me go back just a bit, real quick, because what um, Bin Laden was responsible for the initial World Trade Center attack, the bomb that was in the basement. Did did he claim responsibility for that?
2: No. He well, there, there were some other people who claimed responsibility, but there was some overlap between uh-huh. you know his network and some of the uh-huh. people who were behind that, but not the 1993 bomb. Not now, the 1993. He did claim credit credit for were. Uh, the 1998 East Africa embassy bombing. And
1: and the USS Cole, right? And the USS Cole in 2000
2: in Yemen. So starting Mm -hmm. in 98, when our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania were bombed, those were serious, serious terrorist attacks. Mm -hmm. Al-Qaeda and Bin Laden's group definitely organized and carried those out and then also carried out uh, the USS Cole attack in Yemen in 2000. Okay. So... So
1: my question is: What was the event that turned? the Since if we were kind of loosely aligned in the eighties against the Soviets, what was the turning event which turned them directly against the United States?
2: So Bin Laden, in particular, saw the United States as propping up the Saudi royal family. Okay. And Bin Laden was a, was even a though Saudi. he's from there, he's from the and he thought the Saudi royal family was uh, corrupt and and particularly un-Islamic was his view. Okay. And so he thought the United States had really, and, you know, had supported the Saudi royal family for decades, and he was trying to sever that alliance, so to speak. Mm. And that that was one clear example of that. So he was trying to attack the United States to sort of drive it out of, of the Middle East. He was particularly, uh, you know, one of his grievances was that the United States had sent troops to Saudi Arabia after the first Gulf War, uh-huh. you know, to, the first time we were fighting Saddam Hussein in 1990 and 91, the United States had sent a large number of troops to Saudi Arabia uh, to help kick Saddam, you know, back out of Kuwait. And right. uh, Bin Laden saw this as sacrilegious, the idea that infidel troops were allowed to stay in Saudi Arabia, which is the uh-huh. land of Mecca and Medina And so this is really for him, this was this was crossing the line. And he thought because the Saudi government had allowed this, that, you know, this this was forbidden. And so this for him really set in stage that conflict that was to unfold in the years to come.
1: Okay, so 9-11 happens. uh, And right after 9-11, where is Osama bin Laden? Was he being harbored by the Taliban in Afghanistan? Because that that's what we were led to believe. And that's true. He was. Uh He
2: had a base in in Afghanistan. Uh, He had a very strong alliance with the Taliban. Now, it's important to distinguish that uh, there's no indication that the Taliban knew anything about Uh 9-11 ahead of time. And there certainly were no Afghans. Or any connection. Right. It was all carried out by al-Qaeda and uh, 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis. A lot of the planning took place in Europe, in Germany and as well as in the United States, because you remember mm-hmm. the hijackers came here to go to airplane school to learn how to fly these, these planes.
1: Right. Right.
2: But bin Laden was pulling the strings from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. After 9-11, the Bush administration specifically demanded that the Taliban hand over bin Laden. You know, George Bush said, if you hand over bin Laden, maybe we won't invade your country. And the Taliban refused. Right. So that's what led to the war starting in October of 2001.
1: And there's so much conflation right at the beginning, because one of the things that was said was they want to make sure that if they disrupt this, then they can't plan another attack in the U.S. So I'm like, you can plan an attack anywhere. You can you can plan a terrorist attack, you know, anywhere. Why do you you don't have to be in a place to plan a terrorist attack? I never understood the geography of that decision. Well, um, no,
2: that's a really basic fundamental issue with the whole war. Yeah. And why were we there? You know, in, in the very beginning, the whole purpose of the war was to go after Al Qaeda and to uh-huh. track down Bin Laden, right. To hold the people who were responsible accountable for it and to make sure there couldn't be a repeat attack. Now at the time in 2001, that made sense because Al Qaeda's base, its refuge uh-huh. was in Afghanistan, but within six months of the war starting, uh, Al-Qaeda had all but disappeared from Afghanistan. Its leaders had all been uh-huh. captured, killed, or had fled the country to go to Pakistan or Iran or Iraq or places like that. So Al-Qaeda was pretty much gone from Afghanistan by April of 2002, and even it- Biden had left to go to Pakistan.
1: And And what was Bush's initial stated strategy? Was it to do what you just said? Was that his initial stated
2: strategy? That was the initial stated Mm -hmm. objective that he and and the whole country understood this, right? He Mm -hmm. said, "Our objective is to go uh, attack Al Qaeda." You know, and and at first, it wasn't even the goal. wasn't to knock the Taliban out of power. It was just to degrade their military capabilities, as Bush put it, so Mm -hmm. that they you know, to weaken their hold on the country so that Al Qaeda couldn't stay there anymore. But the focus was all Al Qaeda, but then things started to blur and mm-hmm. the Bush administration right. started to lump the Taliban and Al Qaeda together and they just called right. them all terrorists. Yes. And,
1: that's, and that's the part where, where that's the setup for the 20 years, right? <laughs> it's, that's when things it's started the lumping to together. The yes, exactly. And so in you were talking about in April of 2002 and Donald Rumsfeld plays a fascinating part in this. Uh, One thing you point out in your book is how all these memos that he's written that are amazing to read now that are called snowflakes, because there are so many of them by his people. Uh, But he pretty much describes
2: what was going on kind of accurately behind the scenes, right? Yeah. There was one pivotal moment in April of 2002 Bush goes to give a speech at the Virginia Military Institute, this private Uh military college in in southwestern Virginia. And Bush is feeling good at that point because, you know, the Taliban was toppled. The fighting had almost stopped in Afghanistan. Uh Al-Qaeda's leaders were gone. I mean, bin Laden had gotten away, but, you know, it looked like we had won the war. And Bush is feeling, Uh you know, his approval ratings are sky high. And he gives a speech at Virginia Military Institute in which he's reassuring people, don't worry, we won't get stuck in Afghanistan. We're not going to get bogged down like the Soviets did. And we're (laughs) we're not going to have a repeat of what happened to the British there in the 19th century. But on that same day, uh, when Bush is giving that speech, Rumsfeld writes this memo to several top generals and aides and says, uh, you know, if we don't get a plan to stabilize Afghanistan, we're never going to get our troops out of there. And he ends the memo with one word. It says, help exclamation point. Wow. So here, you know, here's Bush telling the public, don't worry, we're not going to get stuck. We're not it's mm-hmm. not going to be a quagmire. But on the exact same day, Rumsfeld in private is is screaming help from his general saying we're going to get stuck if we don't figure out a way to get out of there. So it's just this complete <laughs> contrast. I feel
1: like uh several things happened during this time too. wait the first thing is who changed the objective like how did that happen and then then what happens well however that happened I don't know whether it's the generals doing something or Bush's people or whatever but then when Iraq starts to become the focus the the eyes get off of Afghanistan and it's like you know whatever happens is going to happen now. Like no one's even in charge after a while, it seems.
2: Well, you're right on both counts. So first, the, the question of what happened, why they changed the, yes. the objective in the strategy. Uh, part of that is because even though Bush had promised we wouldn't get stuck in Afghanistan and mm-hmm. we would not get involved in a long nation building campaign. Yes. The truth was, you know, we own the place. Right. We knocked the Taliban out. We were in control of the country and afghanistan
1: the uh, pal do- uh, doctrine actually you break it you own it right
2: well right but the country mm. it was a wreck i mean it needed help you know and mm-hmm. the only way to try and stabilize it was trying to get it some help so that's when things started to shift but bush never really spelled out how much help and what we were going to mm-hmm. how long we'd be there and the reason for that is as you you mentioned that They just started shifting their focus to Iraq that Uh uh, is is as early as December 2001, the Pentagon was drawing up war plans to invade Iraq, Uh uh, you know, 18 months before it happened. And so they they kind of they thought they had won in Afghanistan and they stopped paying attention. We kept several thousand troops there, but, you know, all the attention, all the focus went to Iraq and we stopped watching what was going on in Afghanistan.
1: From your point of view, Craig, why do you think the focus went to Iraq? Some people suggest it was a vendetta, the Bush, you know, getting back for his dad or that type of thing because they wanted to assassinate him. I've heard those kind of rumors. Was it some people say it's the neocons, you know, Cheney at all, you know, who are leading that. Uh, where, where did that come from? That Because that was a sharp shift and really divide, the country was united around the Afghanistan approach initially, but was very divided about Iraq.
2: Exactly. And it it was, to be honest, a neocon thing that even before September 11th, when Bush's administration came into power, Mm -hmm. they'd always had Iraq as one of their foreign policy priorities. It was in their sights. The administration had been soft on Saddam Hussein. And Mm -hmm. there were some of them who had been involved under the first President Bush in the first Gulf War that thought, we let Saddam get away you know, that we should have pursued this and tried to knock him out of power instead of just kicking Iraq out of Kuwait. And Mm -hmm. so I think this was, this had been a priority for Cheney and Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz and a lot of these guys. And when 9-11 happened, that sort of became a pretext for, okay, we've got world opinion on our side on this war on terror. Let's see if we can make that shift uh, to Iraq, that we can use this as an excuse to take military action in Iraq. It's something they had been thinking about for a while, and now all of a sudden, uh, you know, we we had this war in Afghanistan, and it, they tried to see if they could extend it to Iraq in so many words.
1: And during that period of the Iraq invasion and I think the year or so afterwards, what was going on in Afghanistan? Was it, was there like mission confusion? Did we, I don't think we had a lot of troops during that time, right?
2: No, we didn't. And only a a small fraction of the number that went to Iraq, you know, maybe we Uh had 10, 15,000. So we had a pretty light force there, but it really just went on autopilot. And there's one really good story in the book that there's another one of these memos from Rumsfeld. Mm-hmm. one year into the war. So this is the fall of 2002. It's, it's a few months before we invaded Iraq. Mm-hmm. Rumsfeld goes to the Oval Office to see Bush. And he says, Mr. President, I've got two generals in town who I think you should.
1: Oh, yes, that, that was great.
2: <laughs> and yes. one of them is this guy, General Tommy Franks, who's in charge yeah. of all military operations in the Middle East. And he's drawing up plans to invade Iraq. The other one is General Dan McNeil. And Bush says, oh, yeah, Tommy Franks, I want to meet with him to talk mm-hmm. about Iraq. Uh, but who's General McNeil? Who's that other guy? Who's the other guy? And Rumsfeld <laughs> says, well, sir, he's he's your general, the top general in Afghanistan. And Bush goes, oh, well, I don't need to meet with him. So here you have the commander in chief. He doesn't even, he forgot the name of Had his,
1: no idea who of he his was, top then.
2: guy in Afghanistan. And then when Rumsfeld says, well, maybe you ought to talk to him. He's like, oh, no, no, I don't need to do that. So that really gives you a sense of their mindset, Bush was all mm-hmm. focused on Iraq had totally stopped paying attention to Afghanistan.
1: Wow. What um all through the book you go it's fascinating cuz I I love that no one can consider this a partisan book at all, which I love, you know. And each administration has had a problem with a with the truth, <laughs> you know. What what were some of the biggest lies from the Bush administration during this period? Well, or so- or misleads or whatever you want to call them you know
2: well some of it was about individual events so for instance uh in february 2007 the insurgency in the taliban was starting to pick back up Mm. the number of suicide bombings had started to increase and we knew we were kind of getting in trouble that the taliban was coming back and we couldn't just eliminate them so in february Mm -hmm. 2007 vice president cheney makes an, an unannounced trip to Afghanistan. He's going there to meet with President Hamid Karzai. He flies into our biggest base at the time called Bagram Air Base, north of Kabul. Yeah, And he, he got uh, bad weather, kind of snowed him in at the base. Anyway, while he was there, there was a suicide bomber, blew himself up at the front gate of Bagram Air Base. Wow. And uh, the Taliban immediately claimed credit and said that the suicide bomber was targeting Dick Cheney. Uh, just happened to miss him. But that was, you know, they were bragging about this because up till that point, they hadn't been able to attack the Americans at that base. Uh And immediately the U.S. government denied this, you know, dismissed it entirely. The U.S. military spokesman in Kabul called it an absurd claim that the Taliban didn't know where Cheney was. And Cheney was on the other end of the base, like a mile away. He was never in danger. But in documents I obtained for the book, there was an oral history interview with an army officer who was in charge of security at Bagram that day, uh, including he was working with the Secret Service to protect Cheney and his movements. He said the Taliban came very close to killing Cheney, that it was only 30 minutes that they missed him coming out of the front gate, uh, and that he said there was no question that Taliban had figured out Cheney's movements and that this this was a close call. So here's, here's an example of in public, they're denying it, the U.S. government. But uh-huh. in reality, the Taliban was right. You know, they were targeting Cheney and they did come close. But the Bush administration also just started to mischaracterize how the war was going. You know, Bush and his uh-huh. generals kept saying, we're making progress, we're making progress. And they came up with these kind of ridiculous explanations for the Taliban comeback. You know, when violence levels would go up. They would say, well, that's because we've got more troops over there. So there's more targets for the Taliban to shoot at mm. If the suicide attacks were going up. They'd say, well, that's because the Taliban's getting desperate. Right. So, they, they, you know, they have to do these suicide attacks. So no matter what, they'd always spin it so that it looked like we were making progress, even <laughs> though they, they knew we weren't. And that's when that kind of explanation really started to take root.
1: That's like Trump saying, there's more cases because you keep testing people. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have, that's exactly, it's
2: exactly, the, yeah. same thing. exactly yeah. the
1: same thing. It's crazy. Was, is, was there a possibility that the Afghan war could have ended in 2002? Or could that, because of the way it was all set up, it, it actually couldn't have happened then, even if they wanted it to?
2: You know, that's a really good question. One, we can't mm-hmm. answer definitively, of course, but sure. certainly in 2002, 2001, the missed opportunity for the United States and its NATO allies was trying to bring the Taliban back into the fold somehow. That right. Because Rumsfeld and Bush kept calling the Taliban terrorists like al-Qaeda, you know, they equated mm-hmm. them with al-Qaeda. They said, even though the Taliban had been kicked out of power and badly weakened, There were some Taliban leaders who showed uh, a willingness to become part of the new Afghan political system. That they essentially wanted some sort of compromise where, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of chasing us and trying to kill us, if you would call a truce here and you let us into this new system, we want to do that. But Cheney, Bush, and Rumsfeld said, no, no, the Taliban have two choices they can surrender or die, right? So there was no alternative for them but to sort of head for the hills. And slowly over time, this insurgency came back, right? Because Uh the Taliban was really woven into the fabric of Afghan society. It wasn't like Al-Qaeda, where it was a small group of foreign fighters that you could eliminate. The Taliban was, I mean, look, they're brutal, they're bad, there's no way to dress them up, but they're part of Afghan society. You can't just erase them. And I think that was the mistake that was made early on, the idea that we could vanquish them militarily and they'd never come back. And uh-huh. so there wasn't in the early years when the Taliban was weak and we had an opportunity to bring them back into the system to reconcile, so to speak, we, we blew that opportunity. And if if we had worked that out early on, it wouldn't have been easy. But if they had that, would have then there would have been no insurgency. There wouldn't have been this war anymore because uh-huh. it was just the Taliban had nowhere else to go. And. They, so they were left just to fight.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I'm really struck, Craig, in your book, how much of a factor that our ignorance of Afghan culture played a part in so many different aspects of the war, just the way that you described this, not understanding how the Taliban operated in the world, that they, yes, they would accept defeat, but then would want a seat at the table, you know, as a a simple condition of defeat because they're embedded in the people there you're absolutely right or or not understanding simple customs of afghani culture and trying to impose like our our idea of a police force there which wasn't their idea and not understanding those things how, how significant was that in in establishing this quagmire and setting up this quagmire
2: oh a huge huge issue mm-hmm. the fact that we didn't we never understood afghanistan and that's a good example of the taliban trying to come back in the fold because Afghanistan had mm-hmm. this history, they had so much factionalism and civil wars and fighting, but they also had a tradition that people switch allegiances all the time.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah, right. right. It, it,
2: a, <laughs> that's it, just it, what they do. Right. Sorry. Well, it is. And they, you know, you, these warlords are fighting the Taliban one minute, next minute, they're yeah. joining them. That's very common over there, these shifting alliances. And that's something we never, we never understood, but, in in the documents I obtained for the book, you'd hear this time and again from uh-huh. even at the top levels. There was an interview with a three-star general named Doug Lute, who was the war czar under Bush and Afghan and under Bush and Obama. And he kept saying we were fundamentally devoid of an understanding of Afghanistan. We just didn't know what we were doing. And you hear uh-huh. that time and again that the Americans just didn't understand the culture. But even on the ground level, you'd see this. There was one interview with the an army psychological operations specialist, PSYOPS, right? And his job was to go to Afghanistan and influence the thinking of the population. So he's supposed to be a Green Beret who, who knows foreign cultures. Uh-huh. But he was saying, in the first time he went to Afghanistan in 2003, he gets on the plane to go over there. and the book he brings with him is Islam for Dummies, right? <laughs> Yes. Islam for Dummies. It seems like a joke. Like, that can't
1: possibly be true.
2: No, I know. I get it. But it is true. And he's he's not just some Joe soldier. He's yeah. supposed to be the specialist in foreign The culture. specialist, yes. And so that really sums up how little we did understand. And even though we were there for 20 years, yeah. we never really developed, in expertise. We didn't have people who spoke the languages, but uh-huh. so most of the people who went to war, whether they were troops or diplomats, they go in for six or 12 months and they come home. Then somebody new goes over. And yeah. on one hand, it's understandable. You don't want to keep somebody there for 20 years, but we never really developed a, a level of expertise in the society. And, yeah, and we just recycled people.
1: I'm really surprised that the CIA wouldn't have had a more expert hand in these matters. I mean, I've joked as a comedian about American cultural arrogance—you know, not wanting to learn other languages. <laughs> you know, we're we're very provincial here and that sort of thing. You know, we're, in Europe, you're almost forced to because you're so surrounded by everywhere in different places in the world. But to have it play out in a you know intelligence effort and that sort of thing, where you are def- I think you know,
2: this is one thing you hear again and again in the book and in interviews, actually. The diplomats, our American diplomats, were just savage about the CIA. They'd say the CIA would run around in Afghan clothes and they'd go <laughs> yeah, to right. and to
1: blend in. In beards, like that and, was going to fool people. Yeah. Right. That, and
2: yet they didn't, you know, that was the extent of it. They never really Shocking. got under the surface. But I think also one thing we sort of fell to the temptation that we thought we knew Afghan society. And so we'd buddy up with these Afghans who spoke English.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: right and a lot of times these would be you know dubious characters right particularly yes. the cia and so karzai well cars, right, or <laughs> yes. the other warlords who some of them speak english right. or karzai's brother was a, a notorious uh, warlord on horrible. the cia payroll and yeah. they sort of tell the cia what they think they want to hear and we didn't have any independent way of really checking mm-hmm. it out we just Right. We took their word for it, which, you know, if you're the CIA, you should never do, right? You think, oh, it's crazy.
1: I, one of the devastating lines in the book, it's a very simple line. I, I miss, I'm i probably misquoting it, but uh, who are the bad guys? I mean, that simple statement is... Well,
2: that, that was I a mean, line that's, that came from top that, to bottom.
1: Yes, that, that hit me right in the middle. Like, oh, my God, you have an, a, a a military that doesn't even know who the bad guys are.
2: It doesn't know who the enemy is. You're right. And this who the is, enemy is, yeah. They failed to define, because in the beginning, the bad guys were al-Qaeda. That made sense, mm-hmm. right, you know, because of 9-11. But then we lumped in the Taliban as the bad guys, but then mm-hmm. we couldn't even really tell who was Taliban and who wasn't. <laughs> right. From these documents, you have people saying, you know, it was just whoever was shooting at us were bad guys. We we didn't know why they were shooting at us. They could have been wow. uh, drug trafficking traffickers or just some guy some farmer telling us get off his land but anybody who shot at us we'd shoot back at them and assume they were the taliban Uh and you so on the on the ground level the the grunts would say where are the bad guys show us the bad guys we want to fight and the combat advisors couldn't tell them they're like it's not so easy here you know they don't wear uniforms But then even at the top, there was a Rumsfeld from Memo two years into the war. He sends it to his intelligence chief at the Pentagon. And he says, I have no visibility into who the bad guys are in Afghanistan. So here's a secretary of defense two years into the war saying, I can't even tell you who the enemy is. And if you don't know who the enemy is two years in the war, you're in you're in trouble.
1: You're in pretty bad shape. Yeah. Uh and then we get into the Obama portion of this, uh, which is kind of the flip side of the Bush portion, but kind of repeating mistakes, but in a different way. Is that a
2: good way to say it? I think that's exactly right. So Bush, mm-hmm. he stopped paying attention to Afghanistan.
1: and then- <laughs> yes, he just got bored. Well, he, 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 he got preoccupied
2: with something else down right. in Iraq. but. You know, mm-hmm. at a time when Afghanistan, I think if Bush had done more in Afghanistan to strengthen the country, to stabilize it in the early mm-hmm. years, it, it might have made a difference. Right. OK. But by the time Bush leaves office, the Taliban's come back and the war is not going well. And Obama. Right. When he campaigned the first time, he promised to end the war in Iraq. But he also f- promised to fix the one in Afghanistan because that was seen as the just war. You know, the yeah, I remember wars.
1: Yeah, people were saying, this is the good war. Iraq is a bad war. Afghanistan's a good war. We should be there. In fact, many liberals were saying that we're almost promoting our uh, presence there in Afghanistan.
2: That's right. So when Obama comes in, he essentially, he overcompensates for what Bush didn't do. He sent more troops, a lot more troops, 100,000 troops. That was it's his surge. People. Right. Right. And then they started spending like nobody's business trying to build up Schools, roads, clinics, the Afghan government—you know—they just started throwing money at the problem. You know that's uh-huh. kind of how our government works sometimes. Yes, right. Obama throwing money at it, uh-huh. and so Obama—you know—I think he he tried to fix things, but he he was essentially, like you said, the flip side of Bush. We went from one extreme to the other, and that didn't work either. But also, like Bush, the Obama administration. They didn't tell the public the truth about what was going on. They kept dressing it up that everything was going great. We were making progress, even though Mm -hmm. they knew that we weren't.
1: Yeah. And in the middle of all that, the initial objective is done by killing bin Laden. Was that that was in
2: 2011, was it? May of 2011. Bin Laden was killed in Pakistan. And of course, that's something you hear a lot nowadays you know, President Biden has said this, why didn't we get out after we killed bin Laden? Okay. And I think in some ways Obama was trying to get out. It wasn't that he did so immediately after bin Laden was killed, but he mm-hmm. had hoped to withdraw all U.S. forces by his second term. And they had already started withdrawing some U.S. troops from his surge when bin Laden was killed. But they just they they went really slow and they it was all dependent on the Afghan army getting built up so that they could uh-huh. defend their own country. This was all of Obama's strategy hinged on building up the Afghan government and Afghan army so they could fight the Taliban on their own. But that was a, a huge mess. And even though in public, the Americans kept saying this was a great idea and it was working uh-huh. uh, behind the scenes, they knew it was never going to work because the Afghans were just this Corrupt, incompetent uh, force, and so that was one reason why we kept staying because we were Obama was worried that if he pulled out, the government would collapse.
1: What's what's uh, confounding about this period is that on the outside, the administration is complaining, as you say, about this corrupt. Uh, government and yet we keep giving them more money to fuel the corruption. <laughs>
2: know, we keep laugh, rewarding
1: we keep rewarding their corruption. You know? I
2: know it's absurd. And mm-hmm. you know there was one interview with a guy named Barnett Rubin who was a State Department advisor and an and actual expert on Afghanistan. He was an academic and mm-hmm. he he said this would happen all the time. I mean, the Americans would complain about corruption in Afghanistan, but as he mm-hmm. put it uh you know the one Necessary ingredient for corruption is money, and we were the ones yep. with all the money. So you know, we'd send money over there and spend it like nobody's business, and then complain that it end up in somebody's pocket and wonder how it got there. Um, and really, we spent more money trying to build up Afghanistan, trying to nation build in mm-hmm. Afghanistan, than we did in Europe after World War II with the Marshall Plan.
1: That's crazy.
2: And yet that's crazy. It's all gone up in smoke. So we were were spending more money than they could possibly absorb in Afghanistan because it was such Mm -hmm. a rudimentary economy. And so, you know, an awful lot of it ended up in people's pockets. And
1: did the Obama administration on the surface, were they pushing this nation building as a, you know, as a counter to a military intervention? Because didn't Obama say we were going to be out by 2014? Was it Afghanistan, he
2: said that about. Yeah, that's right. And he, yeah. he said he also said we weren't going to do nation building in Afghanistan. Yes, and but Bush, they were. Bush and Trump said the same thing. That's what I said mean. They said the it's same Trump thing. thing. Yeah. Bush, Trump, Obama also said we're not going to nation build in Afghanistan. And but that was their
1: Bush, strategy. They were all in on.
2: That, that's right. I mean, it's right. just and the strategy for Obama was to build up the Afghan government so mm-hmm. the Afghan people would side with the government over the Taliban. And mm-hmm. so the Afghan government could defend itself. But again, it was all money, money out the window. None of it worked.
1: And during this time, too, I mean, that's like 10 years on. I mean, you described how, you know, if you're in a place for 10 years, morale is not going to be good. Uh, you know, there were those incidences during that time of troops like urinating and like corpses of Taliban and burning the Quran and things like that. I mean, it was a mess.
2: It is. And I think this is one lesson Bush was more aware of than Obama. Bush and Rumsfeld early on, they were one reason they didn't want to send many troops to Afghanistan in the early Mm -hmm. years when they could have made the most difference is they knew what had happened to the Soviets, to the Russians. Yeah. And they knew there wasn't going to there wasn't any appetite in Afghanistan for either very long. They'd be seen as occupiers Mm -hmm. and that the Afghans would band together to kick them out, even if they didn't like the Taliban. So they were reluctant to send troops. But like you said, 10 years into the war, Obama starts sending in a huge number of troops thinking that it's kind of like, oh, we're the government. We're here to help people mm-hmm. like us. But I think they really miscalculate and underestimated how weary the Afghans were getting of this foreign war, this foreign occupation, because, right. I mean, you know, even though on one hand we're trying to build schools and hospitals and roads, on the other hand, we're we're doing all these drone strikes and other attacks that kill a lot of civilians mm-hmm. and we're doing these raids. And sometimes we raid the wrong houses and we're yeah. alienating a lot of Afghans who should have been friendly toward us. Mm-hmm. But you know, we, we didn't, it didn't sink in under the Obama administration, the opposition we were creating just by being there for that
1: long. Yeah. When I, when I hosted the white house correspondence center, I actually made the joke about drones uh, to Obama and uh, I didn't see it at the time, but I saw his reaction. He went, ooh. You, yeah, yeah, know, and you I got was,
2: a little trouble for that. I, I
1: did. I did. But I, I'm like, I was very upset about the drone warfare. I'm still not a fan of of a lot of that because it, it takes the human factor out of it in a bad way, I think. Not all the time. You know, I understand why it can be effective, you know. But I think you need the human element to make certain types of decisions, especially like the incident that just happened in Afghanistan with the drones uh yeah, taking out this innocent people where we terrible we Craig.
2: terrorists and we end up killing yeah. a, an aid worker and his family and, and children yeah and, it, and it's only going to alienate more people right you know how is absolutely and th- this is a real ongoing problem we have with the so-called war on terror we think these uh-huh. you know these antiseptic drone attacks we think they're precise it's like a
1: video game too like a like, there, there's just numbers gone. Like, it's not really people. It's just numbers, you know? It's,
2: it's, it's really hard to always... I mean, it, the advantage is you don't get U.S. troops caught in the crossfire, right? You know, you protect U.S. troops because you're using this robot aircraft. But the civilian casualties are have always been a problem. And the backlash right. from that is something I think our government, whichever administration just really underestimates the the blowback that we yeah. create when we screw up one of those drone strikes.
1: Yes. Because if you, if your life is not at stake, possibly, will you take all the measures to make sure that you're, you're right? You know, maybe not, you know, but when you're protecting your troops, you better be damn sure you're, you're going after the right target. You know? Yeah,
2: and I think, I mean, th- there's just a fundamental human error that's baked into that. Yeah. It's, it's a judgment call and the intelligence can be wrong or i mean this this last one they just they saw some guy loading water jugs in his car exactly. and they thought it was gasoline or something that he was going to blow up with a bomb mm-hmm. and it was you know i mean if you're going to base your decision to squeeze the trigger on that something's more seriously wrong with the whole system
1: It just feels like a metaphor for the whole war, (laughs) the whole thing in Afghanistan, you know. Uh, And then, you know, Trump comes along. And to me, I find Trump was very much like the Democrats in 2010 in terms of his view of Afghanistan, you know, or not 2010, but in terms of of how he felt we never should have been there. He's very anti-war. He's he actually brought Republicans along to his point of view. Uh, because Republicans were very much pro the war. They always supported the invasion. By the time Trump leaves office, Republicans are acting like the Democrats voted for the war in Iraq, (laughs) you know, at the exclusion, like bullied the
2: Republicans into it almost. Yeah, it was this complete switch. And he came in promising to end the war. I mean, in some way, you know, just like Obama. Right. And but then he was all over the map. Right. He's on one hand trying to end the war and pull out U.S. troops. On the other hand, he's actually escalating the war from the skies. The number Mm -hmm. of airstrikes under Trump was far more than under Obama. So Mm -hmm. this was out of sight, out of mind for most Americans, but he actually escalated the war while at the same time, he's trying to bomb the Taliban into submission to try and get them Mm -hmm. to the negotiating table. But it just, you know, it didn't work, or at least not like you hoped it would. So he kind of left at the end. He cut this deal with the Taliban where he said, the U.S. would leave, but he, he kicked it over to Biden to make it happen.
1: So how did Trump, how did he eventually talk to the Taliban? Because, I mean, at one point he was going to invite them to Camp David during 9-11. It's crazy. I, I mean, he's bombing them and then they turn into to friends going to a hockey game. Like, how, how did this happen?
2: Well, that's a long story. And this, this gets back to who are the bad guys, right? Who's right. the enemy? even under Obama, they were starting to try and coax the Taliban to negotiate with the Afghan government. Uh, you know, and at one point, there was testimony by the U.S. war commander at the time, a general named John Campbell before the Senate uh-huh. in 2014, 2015. He's He was asked, who's the enemy? Is the Taliban the enemy of the United States? And he says, no, they're not. You know, and this kind of blew people's minds. It was like, well, what are we what are we doing there? Why are we fighting them? But it was this weird situation where we're, we're fighting the Taliban to try and make peace with them, right? And we're trying to convince them to make peace with the Afghan government. And the only way we can know to force them to do that is, is to bomb them. So, uh-huh. Trump, on one hand, he's engaged in this conflict with the Taliban, but he's also trying to negotiate directly with them. And, like you said, there was actually, they were very, very close to bringing. Taliban leaders to Camp David to sign a peace deal.
1: Crazy. Uh, and then Trump, uh, set the date for the, just the withdrawal. I, I think of last May and, you know, Biden's gotten a lot of, uh, criticism for his, uh, kind of, I don't want to say sloppy pullout. It sounds like I'm talking about something else, but, uh, sorry. Didn't want to make that image, but, uh, you know what, as as upset as I was over all that, I'm looking at the whole thing, Craig, and I'm going, you know what? Is are we mad at Biden because he's actually, for the first time, just telling the truth right now? <laughs> That's how I feel sometimes. You know, like, sorry, this is, this is about what we got. You know, this is all we got. This is the best I could do. I mean, as pathetic as it is, it almost seems like it's the first time we're kind of seeing the unvarnished cost of a messy war you know
2: well you're right and it's a jolt because for yeah 19 years we were told things were going fine or stop paying attention don't worry about it it's under control then all of a sudden we see the taliban sweep across the country vaults mm-hmm. into kabul we see this messy evacuation i'm not trying to let Biden off the hook for that because it wasn't yeah. well planned for but
1: no it was not the
2: first president to say what were we doing there what were we trying to accomplish the war was about Al-Qaeda. So how do we get sidetracked on all this other stuff? And as we discussed before, he's the one who said we should have left after Bin Laden was killed, because by then there's I mean, even though Bin Laden was in Pakistan, there was no reason to stay in the region after that. Yeah. And that's a very different message than we've been hearing for, for the better part of two decades.
1: Um, so it's the tough situation we're in now. I I feel like it's so um, it just a lot of it just doesn't make sense to us and how we want things to be with how things probably have to be. It's that's the conflict. You know, the Taliban is not who we would want in power. But ironically, the Taliban is probably the best the Afghans can do, unfortunately, if they're going to have stability right now. Well, this is the big question, right? I mean, you that's know? the and
2: irony in all of it, right? Th- that is. And so the irony is that the Taliban's stronger now and has more control of their own country than they did 20 years ago when we first went in. You know, it, mm-hmm. in 2001, they didn't even control the whole country. You had these Northern Alliance warlords who still were holdouts up in the mountains and the Taliban couldn't get them out. Yeah. And, but now the Taliban, they, they own it lock, lock, stock and barrel. And mm-hmm. They've got way more fighters and more control over the whole country. And you're right, we don't like it. And they're definitely a brutal and and Uh offensive group. Uh Um, But this is, I think, a lot of Afghans, particularly in rural areas, they're just so tired of the fighting. They maybe aren't big fans of the Taliban, but they just wanted the fighting to stop.
1: Yeah, you know, because,
2: I mean, they've just been nonstop war for since 1979.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And they, I mean, again, Taliban might not be their first choice, but they're yeah. like, as long as the war stops, that's what we want.
1: Also, who they have a clear sense of who the enemy is, unlike us. Like with when the Taliban first took over, you know, it's a, they're fighting other Afghans to gain power. But now they're kind of heroic in some people's eyes because they're fighting off. You know, they made the USA go home. You know, that's a bigger symbolic achievement by the Taliban, which can probably win over some people for a long period of time, I would think.
2: Well, and there's a religious aspect of this. They were fighting jihad or a holy war, holy cause. And a lot of Afghans saw things in religious terms that we were the infidels occupying their country and the Taliban, might be a rough and tumble bunch, but at least they were they were religious people, right? You know, they they mm. the reason a lot of people joined the Taliban to fight for them is they thought they had a religious duty to kick out the Americans and the other foreigners and the corrupt Afghan government. So uh, you're right, the Taliban can now say, look, we kicked the Americans out. And before that, we were involved in kicking the Russians out. So they're feeling like You know, when they say God's on our side, you know, that that carries some weight in Afghanistan in that society.
1: Craig, what do we do now in terms how do we have a relationship with Afghanistan? Can we when we know that the Taliban immediately is squashing women's rights? You know, the you know, you know, anybody that was working with us or anything is if they're still alive, it's a miracle, you know but many of those people are going to be gone. Um, are we are we in a relationship with them at this point? Is what what what's our future with them?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. It's one that the Biden administration is just sort of starting mm-hmm. to struggle to figure out how to answer that. So, in terms of official relationship, like diplomatic recognition, like when we say yes, you're the uh, the legitimate government of the Afghan people, I don't think that's gonna come anytime soon. I don't know that we'll open our embassy again anytime soon. Uh-huh. But there, there has to be some level of communication cooperation uh, to go on. So for one, Afghan society and the economy is highly dependent on foreign aid. The vast majority of public spending in Afghanistan comes from donor countries like the United States. Mm-hmm. So if we pull the plug on all our funding and support for Afghanistan, a country that was already impoverished and having real problems is just going to collapse. And then, you know, you're going to look at a, a broken country again and an unstable one. So there has to be some way where we, and the Biden administration's continuing to do that, send aid to Afghanistan, but do it mm-hmm. through third party. So it isn't, doesn't look like they're directly benefiting the Taliban government, but that's That's a fine line to walk. On the other hand, the Taliban very much wants recognition from the United States because it wants to be seen as legitimate in the eyes of the world. And it would love it if we would open our embassy or the European countries reopen their embassies. So I think the Taliban is willing to to talk. And one area where there might be cooperation, ironically, is on counterterrorism, because one threat in Afghanistan right now is the Islamic State or ISIS. And they actually don't get along with the Taliban ISIS-K,
1: yeah. They,
2: they see the Taliban mm-hmm. as too liberal, believe it or yes, not. Yes, exactly. Who are these progressives? Right. <laughs> but the Islamic State, they, they are like al-Qaeda. They have more of a global or regional agenda, more ideological. They are the ones who are more targeting the U.S. and Western countries. So, uh, you know, in the past, the U.S. and the Taliban have kind of under the table worked together against ISIS-Islamic State. Mm-hmm. And I think that'll continue. In fact, that may intensify now. We've already sent our CIA director, William Burns, to Kabul to meet with the Taliban leadership. And I'm sure that's one thing they were talking about was, can we cooperate in the shadows against ISIS?
1: Is where is Al Qaeda in, in ISIS? Is Al Qaeda is Al Qaeda still around then?
2: Sort of. Al-Qaeda is more of a the original group that bin Laden had set up is really a mm-hmm. shell of its former self. They Shit. have bin Laden's number two deputy, a guy named Ayman al-Zawahiri, an Egyptian guy. He's a doctor who, mm-hmm. who was involved in playing for September 11th. He's been on the run for the last 20 years. We think maybe he's in Pakistan or the region, but they really don't have much capability left, that original group. But what they did is they inspired all these affiliates in different uh-huh. parts of the world that take Al Qaeda into their name as part of their brand, but they aren't really controlled by Bin Laden's original group. So uh-huh. the original group that Bin Laden had headed up, I don't want to say it's, it's gone, but it's a, it's a shadow of what it used to be. And I don't think as much of a threat, What the threat now are these spin-off groups like uh-huh. Islamic state or others that sort of affiliated themselves with Al Qaeda or, follow that same global ideology those are the ones that we need to watch out for
1: it's a it's amazing to me so we may have to have this relationship with the middle ages in order to fight the stone age
2: (laughs) maybe that's what we're looking at right it's crazy it is crazy and this is the thing you know we're out of afghanistan militarily yeah but this broader conflict against uh Islamic radical groups that see the. US as an enemy, that's something we still haven't figured out. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's going to be tough. We, we sort of want to fight in a place when really the enemy wasn't the place. It yeah. wasn't Afghanistan. It right. was the, these radical groups that cross borders and are you know from everywhere from
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, you know South Asia to the Middle East and North Africa. We're, we're fighting a network and an ideology. That's yeah. the real enemy, not Afghanistan the place.
1: Yeah. You know, like most Americans, I supported the Afghanistan war when it first happened. But, you know, as it went on, I realized, I think early on, that probably a better, a more effective way to have fought that would have been a CIA operation, you know, just to, I mean, it, they wouldn't have gotten as much credit, you know, but a CIA operation directly, at bin laden you know i mean ultimately that's what happened anyway pretty much you know with that is
2: it was a cia operation yeah
1: I'm, i mean that's how we got them i mean that probably should have been done from the beginning but i think you needed that big show of military after after nine eleven. you probably needed that for the american people to be satisfied right i think that's
2: Yes, I think at that time it made sense though, because Al Qaeda did have a base in Afghanistan, it had camps there. Yeah. And you know, so and the Taliban was giving them refuge. So Mm -hmm. it would have been tough to just send a, a few CIA spooks in there to have that kind of effect. But certainly after within the first six months, things the game had changed. Yeah. And that's when we we kept sending more and more troops and just hunting down everybody we thought might be a terrorist. Uh, because I think we were still panicked over 9-11 and still there was this fear. And so the idea is we, we have to control this territory to mm-hmm. make sure it doesn't happen again. And, and that was a big miscalculation because, of course, we were never going to control Afghanistan for very long. Yeah.
1: Um, uh, such a mess. Craig, it's such a breathtaking uh, account of this time. I, every, I'm shaking my head on every page going, fuck, man, what? Really? Oh, my God. What? No. <laughs> you know. uh, well,
2: there was one interview for the book that kind of summed it up. It was with this general, Doug Lute, who is the uh-huh. White House Warzar, And he said, it's much worse than you think. And, <laughs> yes. after- right? and everybody yes. knew the war wasn't going well or it was screwed up. But I think what this book shows is it was much worse than people knew.
1: I love that in the beginning too. Like they're arguing over should we put in more than one shower? I mean, nobody's going to be here for long anyway. You know, let's just put in one shower. That's all we need is one shower.
2: (laughs) I know, incredible. And then ended up having you know our biggest embassy in the whole world and these this enormous network of bases. And and in the beginning, that was the idea. We don't want to stay because we don't want to have repeat what happened to the Soviets. Yeah, repeat what happened in Vietnam. Let's just one shower, that's it, like you said. Um, yeah. But that just it's incredible to watch it unfold the other way.
1: It's so weird that these things keep ha- happening in Afghanistan. It makes me wonder who's next. You know, it's is China the next country to I mean, they're up next. You got next, China. I, they're like, we'll do this right. 20 years later. You were right. right. What were you we thinking? <laughs> we, we
2: laugh, but you never know.
1: I know. Well, Craig, thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, Your work is always so thorough and interesting. I appreciate you being on the the show today. The Afghanistan Papers, you guys, The Secret History of the War, if you want to understand what was going on there, if you want to be frustrated like me (laughs) as you're reading it and just exasperated, please read this book. It's fascinating. Best of luck with it and everything, Craig.
2: Thanks, Larry. Really appreciate it. And it was great chatting with you.
1: And thanks for your service, sir. I appreciate this book is a service. Thank you very much. I appreciate that.
2: Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care.